to open your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We are, uh, we've, last week we kind of turned a corner in Isaiah. Up until this point in time, uh, Isaiah has actually been pretty pretty dark. I mean, talking about all the problems that Israel is having and the pride of Hezekiah and, and the armies being outside constantly, you know, ready to attack. But now we get we get a, a much uh, a, a truer picture now of who God is. We talked about it last week in Isaiah 41, and we're going to continue at today, in, or in 40, and we're going to continue today in 41. You know, what is what is the greatest challenge in the culture to our churches today? At one time, you know, it was the sciences. The sciences. The sciences would say that you know evolution is true, and archaeology had yet to prove the Bible. Most people don't know this, but the reality is that they, we really didn't know if there really was a Pontius Pilate. There was no archaeological proof that Pontius Pilate ever existed until it was found, I think it was in the 40s, they uncovered an archway that had Pontius Pilate on it. And as you study, as you're looking at, at, uh, at the news today, and you start to look into some of the sciences, you start to find out that you know, archaeology today is more and more proving the validity of Scripture, that the, the, these supposed stories, which are actually narratives, that are actually true stories of what occurred, are actually being proven true. Archaeology has yet to prove the Bible false. And so what has happened today is many... Uh, many people are beginning to look at the theory of evolution, and they're looking at it intelligently. They're scrutinizing it. They're, they're saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe that's not quite it. Now, many of them aren't willing to take the leap and actually say the Bible's true. But they are beginning to, to doubt what they held so closely. But that is not what is actually the biggest danger in churches, to, from the culture to churches today. Today we have an even greater threat. And that's New Age beliefs. Um, I've been doing a lot of studying, a lot of watching um, of some videos pertaining to this. Churches like Bethel in Redding, California and Hillsong, based out of Australia, are spreading teachings that on the surface are mixed with biblical principles. It may seem right, but in reality they're teaching another Jesus. They're teaching little God theory, which is something taught by Mormons. They're teaching mysticism. They're teaching that we can control nature with our minds and we can speak things into existence, that Jesus was not did nothing as a, as a God, but was doing everything as a human, showing that we can do it too. False teachings. New Age ideas are creeping. I've been preaching and talking about this for years. They're beginning to creep into the church and... I'm at that point where I'm not so sure I can stay as silent as I have been, especially with our other churches I know and church leaders. Many churches are, are oblivious to it. They have no idea what's going on. And the sad thing is, is that uh, places like Bethel have so far infiltrated the worship, which that's why we don't do any Bethel music, that it's beginning to also infiltrate other parts of the church. Just because a building calls itself a church does not mean that the people inside are the body of Christ, our church. We have this, seem to have this desire, this, this desire for a supernatural experience. We want to experience God. We want to experience uh, supernatural things. 
And what it has done, if we're not careful, it will lead us to apostasy. Add to this the culture war that's being raged around us with, with BLM, with, obviously now this isn't going to be able to be posted on YouTube, but <laughs> BLM and, and uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, the whole racist things, the critical race theory, done a lot of research on critical race theory and the, the catchwords that we hear, and I'm hearing it constantly. And if you know anything about investments, the ESG, which is all about not worrying about making a profit, which is not always the most important thing, but more about how does it affect the environment, the environment that God told us to subdue, the environment that God gave us to be good stewards of. Yes, we need to take care of it, but it's going too far. Biblical churches today are finding themselves pushed to the side, struggling to reach the culture today that have, with the truth that they need because it's being drowned out by false teachings in the world. Truth itself has become fluid. Interpretation is no longer a matter of looking at a text and, and discovering the meaning that was intended by the original authors. It's this thing called context. And I, I've said this in my Sunday school class. I've said this in our small group. The three, most important, the three most important things when you're trying to interpret the Bible is context, context, and context. What did the original authors mean? Who were they writing to? What was the worldview? What language was it in? Because it matters. Because English does not perfectly translate Greek or Hebrew. So you have to do some extra study. The interpretation is now based upon the reader's own perception of the text. I was just listening to uh, listening to um, a, a guy I watch, his name is Mike Winger. If you want to watch this, it's an hour, over almost two hours long. He's talking about a new book out by one of the members of Bethel Church, um, writ, part of it written by the pastors, two of the pastors at Bethel. And one of the things that, that the lady who wrote in, this is actually the pastor's secretary who wrote this, she teaches people how to get to heaven, how to have experiences where you get yourself to heaven. Now. Not when you die, but right now you can experience going to heaven. That's what she teaches. And in that, she says, I know this is what this says, but I feel that God is telling me this with this verse. New revelation. It's a problem. We want to we take the text and we want it to say what we want to say without looking at what the original language was, and looking at what the original writers intended based upon the context around it, the chapter, the verses around it, the book around it. Author Dorothy Sarah, she put it this way. She says, In the world it's called tolerance, but in hell it's called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, remains alive because there's nothing for which it will die. You see, there's, there's one truth there's one truth in our world and in our reality that deserves our complete devotion, and that is the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And why is that? Because it was at the cross. It was centered on the cross. This, the cross was God's deconstruction. He completely, de he completely destroys all worldly power with the cross. Because the world will tell you that there is, you need to be Power. You need to be strong because there's power in being strong. And you have to win in order to gain. But the, what the cross says is no. There is power in weakness. Jesus weeping in the garden before he was going to be crucified. 
there's so much power and weakness and that there's much gain in loss. Because that loss and that weakness will lead to servanthood. And the cross itself proves that the truth is being suppressed by the world. The dying love of Jesus is the only truth that deserves our trust. Now, we've been in Isaiah, and you're thinking, wow, that's, that's a lot to talk about Jesus when we're talking about Old Testament. Believe me, but Isaiah, he may be an Old Testament prophet, but he is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He shares a very clear truth, and he sees that God is working. God is working. We talked about this over the last three weeks, that God didn't just spin things and then walk away. God is working in and through history. The God of the past, the present, the future. He doesn't take advantage of us. He loves us. He bears our burdens. What he shows, what Isaiah is showing us, is God coming down to reason with us. You know, people call, we were, we were just, you know, a, a time period in history not too long ago was the age of reason. No, it's always been the age of reason. God has always wanted us to reason with him. Talk to him. Let him know what we're feeling, why we think what we think. And he will tell you, that he'll tell you why he thinks. And, and believe me, what he says is much greater than what we say. But we need to reason with him. Isaiah shows that God is here to equip us with a decisive faith in the midst of the world that's full of confusion. So let's open to Isaiah 41, starting with verse 1. This is what God says. He says, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, let them speak, then let them speak. Let us draw together near for judgment. See, what is happening is God, is God is speaking to the Gentile nations. He's, he's talking about, oh, coastlands. He's talking about someplace distant. He's not talking to Jerusalem. He's calling the world. He's calling those in the Gentile nations to come and to debate. Present your case before me. Show me. Prove it to me. We've lost, that's a, that's a lost art today. But he's challenging them to decide the truth based upon proper consideration and evidence. Don't say you're against something if you haven't studied about it. Don't condemn something unless you've read about it, unless you know. You can't just say, this is how I've been taught, this is what I feel. No, it's about the truth. So you need to, you need to do your homework. So God's saying, come on, let's talk about this. Debate with me. Draw near to me. Approach me. He wants to hear their argument for what they believe. And he wants to share the true facts about what it means to trust in him. Now the question is, why would they do this? Why would the nations draw near to Yahweh? I mean, come on. If somebody comes to you and say, you know, I don't agree with you. We need to talk. You know, you need to come. And you're like, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. No. God says, yes, you do. You want to come to me. Because if you do, I'm going to renew your strength. He says, let the peoples renew their strength. Now, originally, this was meant, this idea of drawing near to God and I will renew your strength, actually was intended for the Jewish people. It was intended for God's chosen 
people. They were to be a royal priesthood, a holy people. But now what God is doing, God is saying, it's not just for the Jews. I'm calling out to the Gentiles also. He's offering this renewal to all people who will humbly come to him. God is offering the power of a life lived by the Holy Spirit to the whole world. And we see this. This is why this is the God of history. This is what he's doing, what he's done. We see this in the book of Ephesians. Paul talks about this. He's talking to the church, the people in Ephesus. These people are Greek. They're not, they're not Jewish. He says, therefore, this is Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, meaning that you were Gentiles, born Gentiles, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He's saying the Jews... <laughs> who make themselves the circumcision by circumcising, which is something done physically, called you the uncircumcision. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise. They had nothing, the Gentiles had nothing to do with the promises of Abraham, the covenant, the Ten Commandments having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the cross overcoming the world. Jesus says, God says, listen, Paul says this, but Jesus, that Jesus comes and he, he, he redeems the world, not just the Jews. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Meaning that you, you cannot be saved by following the Ten Commandments. You are saved by the blood of Christ and you follow the Ten Commandments. Understand that? Don't put the cart before the horse. That he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace and might, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. One of the, one of the big words in the, uh, the critical race theory is this whole idea of inclusion. You'll hear these, these key words. It's, well, I hate to tell you, but God is the one who started inclusion. He's including Gentiles and Jews together. He did it. And he broke down the hostility. Not because, not because he said one was greater than the other. He says, you're all the same. You're all broken. You're all sinners. You all need me. So I'm sending my son to die for you. He reconciled us through his blood together as one. And God now has one people, one nation. See, God's goal when he calls you to come and to reason with him is not to win an argument, though he will, not to win an argument, but he's to refresh you with hope. He wants you to have hope. But see, the problem is that we, we, we kind of we have a problem here because what happens is we kind of have a tendency to have misconceptions about God. We have... I missed ideas. We have ideas about him that, that are not necessarily true. 
which is part of the problem with Bethel and Hillsong and many others that have taken on these things. They have misconceptions. They want to form God into something that they want. God's going to put an end to that here in verse 2 of Isaiah 41. He asks a question. He says, Who stirred up one from the east whom victory makes at every step? He gives, us, he gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod, who have performed and done this, calling generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. Who did this? Who, who made the Assyrians come and take the northern kingdoms? Who allowed the Egyptians to come and take over things? Who allowed the Babylonians to come? Who allowed? He's actually, it is believed, he's actually talking about Darius, king of the the Medo-Persians, who comes and takes over Babylon, ends up allowing the Israelites to go back to Jerusalem long before it ever happened. Who does that? It's God. It's God alone. It's, It's not that they did it on their own. God puts it in them to do it. And note, it's, it's not a question of what, but who. Who stirred it up? Not what. It wasn't just because Hezekiah's father did some things or Hezekiah broke off. It was, that's not what caused the, Assyri- the Babylonians to come in, or the Syrians at first, and the Babylonians later to come in. It was not who it was. Who, what was it? It was God who made it happen. Now, I understand God uses people to make it happen, but He is the one. He is the first cause. He is the main reason that these things are happening in history. Do things happen just by chance? No. Do things happen just because our leaders are, are not exactly the smartest people in, in the world? <laughs> I'll be honest with you, they're not. No. God uses them. God even uses the evil one to fulfill His plans. I, I always say this, it amazes me that Satan continues to do what he does because every single thing he does actually leads into God's hand. He knows that God knows exactly what he's going to do and everything's going to work around no matter what he does. But it's not that we just let him do what he wants. We pray against him. No, we, when I say that, it doesn't mean we can command him. It's, we pray for strength. We, pray for the, we put on the full armor of God to fight the spiritual battles. And we pray for protection. You can't command him or the, and the, his demons to stay away from you. But you can pray for protection, and God will keep them away. But it's not a what, it's a who. And if God is not the author of history, what are the implications? What, is, what, is, what happens if God did not author history? Dostoevsky wrote that if there's no immortal soul, if we are not creatures created by God, then there's no virtue and everything is permissible which is the world that many people want to live in. They want to live in a world where everything is okay. But God is the God of the past. He has, has, we have, see His hand throughout history. We see His hand. Our founding fathers could see His hand on them as they were forming our country. And I think sometimes I see Him lifting His hand from us like He did with Hezekiah. He stepped back. He was still with Him, but He let Hezekiah do what He wants. He's letting us do what we want. And we're showing in our humanness how faulty we really are. 
But see, God didn't just set things in motion and then walk away. He pursues us. He calls us. He is the God of the present also. The Holy Spirit awakens in our lives this awareness of Jesus Christ. Why does somebody come to Christ? Why do, it isn't just because you made an argument about, the, about Scripture and they find out that it's true. No, it's the Holy Spirit calling them. Nobody comes to God unless they're being called. But we get this awareness in our life of Jesus Christ, of the need for Christ. And, and, and it becomes more, a more meaningful and more powerful experience beyond our existence. That's why we talk about revival in the church. Yes, we want revival, but we want it to be real. We don't want it to be man-made. We don't want it to be forced. We want the Holy Spirit to pour out on us and for us all to change our lives to what they're supposed to be. Because we should have this desire for it, because we're made aware of who Christ is. Not because, not because we, we, we found some truth in Scripture, but because we find the truth in Jesus Christ and who He is and what He does in our lives. Our lives are a purpo- purposeful subplot in the divine story of the past, the present, and the future. We're all part of this. See, when, 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 when Yahweh, when He spoke things into existence, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And He speaks, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. He creates things. He did not create karma. He did not create luck. Chance. There's no such thing. He was the first cause, and He is the last effect. Our lives are not a fluke. Oh, granted, believe me, in my free will, I do some things in my life that have a tendency to get me off track many times. But He's always there calling me back, calling me back. Son, child, come back. It's like, it's like the prodigal father standing there waiting for the son to return home. And when he does, what does he do? He runs to him. He doesn't wait for his son to come to him. He runs to him. He pursues him. Each and every moment in time in our lives is a demonstration of who God is, who Yahweh is, and how significant we are to his plan. But that doesn't mean, believe me, I want you to make sure you know, you know this, that doesn't make it so that we're so precious and so wonderful. No, we are broken people. And without Christ, we are, we are nothing. We are, the only thing that makes us wonderful is the blood of Christ that's shed for us that we accept. That's it. On our own, we're lost. Verse 5 continues on with this idea of the coastlands. The coastlands have seen and are afraid, and the ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. That time is coming. We, we, we have, we've seen great revivals in our world. We've seen great moments of, of evangelism occurring in our, in, our, in our world. We want more of that. We should pray for it. We should try to do it whenever possible. Because the earth is going to tremble. People are going to realize everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. See, we're getting some comparisons here because we've got a choice today. We can either reinforce the idols in our lives... Or we can reinforce the faith that we have in Christ. And we do that not upon our own. We do that to each other. We get together and we talk about spiritual things. We encourage each other. We push each other on, striving for the, for the end of the race. We, we, don't, we don't run and, and let somebody fall. We lift them up and carry them with us. We, we move along in this, in this race of life. 
towards the prize, which is Christ. See, as, as life is battering us as we long for this stability, but if we look for stability in the wrong place, it's not going to work. We need to find it in Christ. We need to look to Yahweh for our stability. Because the world's going to look at all these man-made ideologies. That's what I've been reading about with Bethel. G.K. Chesterton once said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. And this is where we find ourselves today. Fearful people losing their sense of God and constructing their own meanings, their own beliefs, which in reality are nothing more than myths. As I was listening to, as I was listening to this, uh, this, this commentary on this new book from, from Bethel, I'm like, they're talking about the Force. They have stolen Star Wars, the Force, and that's what they believe in. And I'm like, are you, you're foolish. They're foolish. And they mixed the Bible in there to make it seem true. And they lie. They lie about themselves and they lie about the truth. So how do we do this? How do we, how do we stay firmly planted? We, we need to make sure we are tied to the correct source of our strength. And this is, God's going to redirect himself to Israel. But understand that as we're reading this, you and I are part of Israel, the new Israel. We haven't replaced them. We've been engrafted into them. He said, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I take from the ends of the earth, I call from his farthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. See, we, we try to draw strength from things we shouldn't. I love coffee. I adore. I love the flavor of coffee. I love different flavors. I love to taste them on my palate. But I, I, I can't rely on coffee in the morning to get me going. <laughs> because why? Because I've drunk so much coffee, the caffeine has no effect on me anymore. I, I, I can't rely on the things of this world to keep me going and to get me going. What do I have to rely on? I have to draw my strength from God daily. He chose us. He calls us. He's committed to us. So committed to us, He sent His Son to die for us. See, if we understand this and if we embrace it, guess what? We're going to be unstoppable. If we try to do it on our own, if we try to change the world on our own, we're going to be stopped at every single corner. But if we do it by Christ, if we do it in the power of the Holy Spirit, working in us and through us by His will, doing what He wants us to do, not what we want to do, we'll be unstoppable. I'm not, believe me, I'm not saying we need to go out and conquer the world, because I, I, it's not going to happen. The world is going to fall apart, and ultimately Christ comes. Christ conquers the world. But see, you and I can go and we can show people what it means to be a believer, and we can conquer people's hearts by showing them God, and God will call them and change them. And we can set the example. On one side you have hopeless man made saviors of those of those in this world, and 
On the other side, you have the creator, the sustainer of the whole world who offers us true hope. I don't, I don't know about you. I've, I've, I've lost hope. I've lost hope in our leaders. I have. And, and I'm not saying you have to. I've lost hope in our medical field. Not in all of them. Many of them are there for the right reason. But the lead, their leaders, the administrators, have, have, I've lost all hope in how, with how they, how they lead the, the offices, the hospitals. The doctors are handicapped most of the time. They're, they're shackled to what they're doing. It's foolishness. But see, with God, I have all hope. Because God has taken us on as his responsibility. He could have just let us go. You're not my problem anymore. Go about your way. But he's taken us as his responsibility. We need this assurance in our lives. The world's going to look at us and say we're fools. It's going to attack our stance with Jesus Christ. It's going to get even worse. I know we've said this for a long time. People have been saying that the world is, is getting worse, and, worse, and it is. But it's not hopeless. The world is hopeless, but our position in it is not hopeless because we know ultimately what happens. We win in the end. We just have to be, remain faithful and true because God is our shield and our defender. He's the one who defends us, not me. Jesus told his disciples, he says, if the world hates you, know that it, was, it hated me before it hated you. We should be surprised with all of the things going on. And Peter echoes Jesus' words. He says in 1 Peter 4, he said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. See, even those trials that we're going through, we think are coming from the world, God is allowing them to happen. Why? To test us. To train us. You want to learn how to do something? I can show you how to do it. But how do you really get to know how to do something? By getting your hands in there and doing it and making a mistake. It's a trial. We make mistakes and we fall. And God comes along and picks us back up again and says, keep going. Do it again. Keep going. First person you go to to share the gospel to? Man, I blew that. But the stop? No. Next one. Next one. Learn from your mistakes. So when you're facing fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, be, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. That's at the end. So are you afraid? Are you unsure? Do you seek a path of least resistance in the world? Are you relying on the weaknesses of idols in your life that you've created? God understands. He wants you to turn to Him in, our, in your fear. He wants you to turn to Him in your weakness so that He can prop us up and He can eliminate that fear. It's not that the things that scare us go away. It's that we can approach them in a better way because we approach them with Christ. We need to live an audacious faith in Jesus Christ. How do we do this? And that's where we come to the God of the future. Because God's going to give us three assurances here. The first one's in verse 11 through 13 of of chapter 41. It says, Behold, 
All who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be nothing at all, for I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, for I am the one who helps you. See, when the world opposes us, God will, Yahweh will uphold us. That's what he assures us. Go, try to find those people who are against you. They're gonna, one day they're going to be gone. You're not going to find them. His second assurance is in verse 14. It says, fear not, you worm, Jacob. Wow. That's not very nice, but that's, that's a good description. You men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. That's Christ. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. A threshing sledge was this thing that would, it was like a wedge, and it was sharp, and it would go through the wheat, and it would thresh it. It would separate the chaff from the seed. And that's what he's going to make us. Sharp, having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. And the wind shall carry them away. And the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord and the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. See, we, we, in the world we've had our messiahs, our, our people what we've looked up to. We tried it ourselves. We tried to overcome the world. We tried to conquer the world on our own abilities. We find out that actually our teeth are dull. We're not really doing what we're supposed to do. And God says, no, I'm going to make you this. When I send you out, that's what's going to happen. He's not talking about Christian political power here, though. There are some people who believe that we should just take over all the institutions as Christians. That's not what it's talking about. Because Yahweh's plan is for a timid faith in Jesus Christ to overcome the opposition. And in the process, make the way for the Lord. It's not this, you know, I'm a, you know, I don't rip open my shirt and have a big C on it. It's not Chris, but Christian, you know. I'm not a super Christian. No, I'm a timid Christian who has faith in Jesus Christ and I can overcome anything through the power of Christ. Everything's going to change. God's going to use us to accomplish this. On our own, we wouldn't be able to do it. But with God's will, we can do wonderful things. It's really a wonder that the church can do anything at all when you think about it. And when the church tries to do things on its own ability, it may look like success in the world, but in reality, it's complete failure. Because the fruit that it produces is tasteless and empty. I've watched some of these services in some of these huge churches that are growing like crazy. And, and I'm like, okay, when are you going to open the Bible? When are you going to preach about sin? When are you going to preach about repentance? When are you going to, when are you going to preach about surrender? When are you going to preach about being bold, but being bold because of Christ, not because of ourselves? It's tasteless and empty. But when we are in Christ and trusting Him and working, and He's working in and through us, we become more than conquerors. It is Yahweh's strength. It's His strength alone that will accomplish His will. And the final assurance is in verse 17. When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. 
I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set the desert of the cyrus, the plain, and the pine together. Who are the poor and needy? Are we? Or are we perfectly complete? Maybe not physically, but I'm telling you, spiritually, there can be no doubt that we can be perfectly complete. And the process God can use us to show people, to show the poor and the needy what is coming. Because the day is coming when God is going to do all these things physically in our world. It's not going to be because of some political leader that we put in office. Anybody who sits in the White House is not our Savior. We only have one Savior, and that's Jesus Christ, and He is coming back. God is our refreshment, not the things of this world. And Yahweh is going to make our desert, the desert of our lives, going to make them bloom. On the last day of the feast, this is in John 7, the great day Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, why would God do such a thing as that? Why would he give us living water flowing from our hearts if we turn to him? And verse 20 of Isaiah 41 tells us that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. The time is coming when no one will be able to give credit to anybody who's not do it. It'll be Jesus Christ. He will be the one. You will know that He was the one who did it. And those that believe in Him will rejoice, will shout with joy. Those who turned away from Him will weep and mourn because of the coming of Christ. You and I get mercy and Yahweh gets the glory. By refreshing us, God increases His glory. When we seek Him in prayer, God answers our prayer with Himself. Book of Luke says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of fish give him a serpent? And if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you, then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? He's not saying you can ask for anything you want and you'll get it. What he's telling you is if you ask, you'll get the Holy Spirit. And by refreshing us, our minds are open to understand who he really is. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians. He says, now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this on the words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. If they're not spiritual, they're not going to understand it. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So how does this apply to us today? Well, understand, Yahweh is the God of the past, the present, and the future. A life lived boldly for Christ is not just mere maintenance. You know, read your Bible every day. Pray. That's your maintenance. That's not what it is. It's a miracle. Our lives in Christ are a miracle. We must give up ourselves and delight in the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. It's hard. I don't want to give up myself. I like myself. I like what I do. 
But see, the life I live needs to show that Christ is living in me so that the world can see what God can do. See, the God of history wants to fill us today with meaning that makes a difference for his glory in the world today and for the world in the future, if we allow him to, if we surrender.